word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicy adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us in the section that we're reading. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Crossland forced me to read the uh, the intro intro today because he bit his lip and then took a shot of vodka, which hurt his lip, apparently. Uh, you, <laughs> wow, you sold me out so quick there. What, what else was I going to do? Of course I did. I mean, it... I get that it's filler, but it doesn't have to be immediate filler. It's, you can say any other number of things. pretty much always going to be something like that. Anytime you make me do something because you hurt yourself, I'm going to call it out. Yeah, okay. Well, I got a fat lip, um, <laughs> and it kind of sucks, but I'm, I'm speaking around it today as best as I can. So today we'll be discussing chapter 34 through 38, the first half of Reaper. Part four of book one of Red Rising. But before we dive into the book, let's uh, talk about what we're drinking. What are uh, what are you having, PJ? Uh, mine is not a cocktail this week. I'm not even going to try to argue it this time. Um, it's just Larceny bourbon. Ooh, that's just that's a, different. Just a though. nice, a nice clean pour straight in a little tumbler, tumbler glass. Uh, have what? not tasted it yet. Ooh. Well, taste so, it and tell us what you taste. Hmm. It's real fucking smooth, man. A little bit of almost like brown sugar note to it. I've been drinking a lot of rye lately, so I'm like expecting that sort of spice and it's not there, mm-hmm. which makes sense because it's not rye, but just nice, a nice, smooth bourbon. You're coming in next week. So or two weeks from now, and I'll have to share some with you. But what are you drinking? I am drinking what what are you chasing with uh <laughs> it's a double ipa from blackstack called sponge okay. bath ah. the background is like bright blue with rubber duckies all over it <laughs> i thought for sure it was going to be an homage to uh spongebob but nope. SpongeBath, of course also makes sense mm-hmm. nice and pillowy yeah. or like frothy i don't know frothy and pillowy that makes sense I'm having kind of a, a usual, so to speak. It's not really that usual, but it's definitely a favorite of mine. I'm having two Crossland size fingers of Glenlivet 12. Good right, uh, Delicious. One of my favorite scotches for the price, I should say. It's it's on the more, I mean, it's not more expensive, but it's a good mid-tier, mid-price scotch. From the store at a bar, you'll pay like $14-ish a pour. Yeah, I don't know. Speaking of random tangent, I spent fucking $11 on a tap Stella at an airport. Why? I didn't realize it was fucking $11. That's why. Uh, <laughs> you order a tap beer, you think it's going to be like six or seven bucks maybe because it's an airport, but it's 11 Yeah. I've never um, had it be 11 I was outraged. Yeah. I Needless would've... to say, the Jameson shot that I had was, or the Jameson double that I had was a dollar more. It was $12. Yeah, and I was that like, sounds what about the right. Fuck am I doing? Well done. All right, it was a nice little Harrisburg nice little airport. loop right there. Yeah, Harrisburg was the offender of the eleven dollars Stella. 
Yeah. Fucking <laughs> stupid. Anyway, I'm chasing that with uh, fucking, because I got back late last night and I had to work hard today, chasing that with a white claw, black cherry. Uh, I think that's what you did last time too, wasn't it? And uh, I, I think last time you did. No, 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 no. I, I've, I have made a drink with white claw before previously. I've done, I think that was an episode three. I did a white claw gin and tonic. Okay. Kind of thing. I think um, you I think you just had a mango white claw for one of them. I think I had a mango white claw chaser in one of the episodes as well. I think but, it was the one we one of the ones we posted this week. Anyway. Oh shit, you're probably right. But I also have a lime white claw to follow that up with because they're small. So there are two. <laughs> anyway, it's cool. Here we are. All right. Uh with that, let's get into the book. So this week is is really, really interesting. I'd say it's a stark There's a stark cut here in part four that is very different from the rest of the book. It kind of moves from a lot of vague concepts into very quick, very rapid segmentation of like plot chunks. So it kind of jumps from like, okay, so now we're doing this. Now we're conquering this. Now we're strategizing about this. Now we're doing that. So it's it's very event driven, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Which I I like. I think that it's done really well, but it, it is kind of a. Not I, I wouldn't call it a departure, but it's a it's a sort of change. It moves us through the action and the seasons a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. So we pick up where the last section left off, of course, a dying Darrow in a ditch being rescued by a woman. We uh, at first he speculates that it's EO and is sort of haze, but it's actually Mustang. Were you surprised? I would like to back up a l- one step and read the uh, intro. OK, little okay. I thought you were going to want that. I I mean, yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. We get it. You're stuck, sucker for staccato sentences. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, before oh, that, talking even, the, I'm the talking actual... the under part four Reaper. Oh, OK. So you wanted to start with the little line right at the beginning of part four. I didn't. Should I read it? Yep. Part four Reaper. The elder women of Lycos say that when a man is bitten by a pit viper, all the poison must be drawn out of the bite. For the poison is wicked. When I was bitten, Uncle Nero left some in on purpose. I don't know if we talked about that previously. I know it was mentioned in the book previously. I think that's a quote from earlier. Even I don't know if it's uh, a, if not so, if not a direct quote, but a similar like concept that was already touched on. Yes, I don't know if we ever yep. talked about it in the podcast. But either way, I think it's a real good sort of uh, lead into this chapter and some of the things that transpire and how just fucking brutal uh darrow could be if he wants to be yeah Um, how how so i feel like we'll get into it pretty pretty naturally if we just start from there and keep that in mind i i do agree with you though i feel like it's a great metaphor for the way that this goes and i think it's actually it's interesting to use a quote from a character to kind of introduce a concept versus in the beginning of like a part or a book or things like that that you might break things up into versus using a like external quote and bringing it in um, from the outside to explain kind of the modus operandi of a section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, um, it's very typical in other literature to, you know, start a book off or start anything else off with a quote from yeah, someone and else. I, I feel like that's almost at this point a little bit cliched. Um, I don't know for sure, but I remember a lot of my reading from like high school and college 
like a lot of chapters would start out that way would be a poem or a a real iconic part of a speech or something that wasn't tied to the book itself but was on the same message so to speak i i don't think that's even close to worn out um not uh, okay cliche i guess was probably the wrong term but common yeah yeah an expectation of course yeah I, I would definitely agree with you. I think that there are chunks of it that are um, one of the books that I can think of that does something similar to this off the top of my head is uh, in various chunks of the Dark Tower series later in the books, they use some internal quotes. But in the okay. early books, it's all external. But later it kind of comes back full circle. Anyway, mm-hmm. just an example. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciated that. We kind of open up with him dying again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of a common theme throughout these sections, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I genuinely believed it was EO that he thought he was seeing. Or he thought he was seeing EO. I genuinely thought it was her. But pleasantly. Yeah. I, I don't know about pleasantly, but... Um, not unpleasantly surprised that it was Mustang. Yeah, it's kind of a different twist on your expectations, considering that, you know, obviously he had made the choice to save her life earlier, and it kind of comes back full circle where she decides to kind of nurse him back to health. Mm-hmm. But throughout the section, she kind of plays it as though she always kind of had the intention of potentially siding with him if he could calm down. Yeah, um, I don't know if I can believe that. I think um, I think that uh, a message like that is easy to say, but knowing how these games have always worked within the last year or so of them, like it's always been brutal. It's always been kind of last man standing everyone out for themselves, even Mm -hmm. within houses. I think that's probably a perspective that she has um, or a perspective that she held only after being spared by him i i'd agree with you i i think that it's interesting um obviously that she's compared to eo right and he thinks about her kind of as eo like wait no missing the golden sigils and everything else and i feel like that's kind of a theme that gets repeated throughout the chapter mm-hmm. or the the entire part that we're talking about today it is a part isn't it part four yeah it's we don't talk through the entirety of the part four but yeah that's something that's a little bit different. Right. They it's are, just, it's, it's, it's tough to know what to call it. It's, mm-hmm. is it a section? Is it a book? Is it a chapter? Yeah. I feel Part. like in, um, if it were a web, like serial, this would be called book four, but low, it is not. Uh, but yeah, any, just, anything else surprise you? Yeah. Low. I, you just it was Shakespearean. I did. Come on. All right. I'm in on the high speech, man. All right. Very way to way to make it relevant. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so she kind of starts singing. What what do they call it? Uh, Persephone's song or whatever. Song, song of Persephone. Yep. Um, which I really thought there was going to be a like I thought she was going to reveal that she knew EO or knew of EO and who who he actually is she she knows of the martyrdom of eo right i i I meant more specifically in relation to darrow and gotcha that darrow has a connection to her but Mm -hmm. it's just kind of coincidence maybe not actual coincidence but she doesn't know Hmm. if that makes ah how do i describe that 
not not coincidence in the fact that he and she get along because of her similarities in personality to EO and she kind of holds on to that message for similar reasons as well. Yes. Yeah. Which is interesting. And I think that speaks to kind of her character. Um, I definitely want to get into this more. I feel like we get a lot more to break this down nearer to the end of the chapter. So I, we should revisit this. Oh, okay. Uh, so one of the things that I, I find, you know, one of the houses that or one of the things that I like here is that they do kind of compare the victory messages, so to speak, uh, throughout the section between EO and Mustang. Right. Like that's that's almost immediate in the way that a lot of these things are handled. So he talks about like her strategy being very similar to EO's um, specifically in 268. They have a discussion about their both of their ascensions to being the primus. Right. So no one in your house would have betrayed you, Dara says, but I didn't rule like you. You have to remember, people don't like being told what to do. You can treat your friends like servants and they'll love you, but you tell them they're servants and they'll kill you. And it's lines like that that are that are great that harken back to kind of the I don't want to say Mustang thinks differently, not similar to Dara, but she thinks differently than a lot of other goals think. Right. And she's always been kind of that different um, personality Uh, from the very beginning when he first sees her in the locker room and they both kind of blush and look away when they're naked, which was not something that Golds typically did, I guess, which starts sowing some seeds of questions of if EO or if uh, Mustang is actually another red. Ooh, Okay, um, let me let because me get to the her. next bit. And okay, we'll, we'll jump. Okay. We'll jump back um, because I I think that that's an interesting conversation to have. So obviously, there's a conversation that feeds into what you're saying, where she says, "Live for more." On two sixty nine, what a beautiful flashback here in that conversation with uh, with Darrow, like having those memories flood back, and also the emotions kind of hit home with us. You know, Pierce kind of sets them up to be compared, which is a genius as it's written, um, and even the allegory between her way of leading the house and Eo's dream itself is interesting where it's, it's a lot more kind of democratic as far as ideas go. And, you know, instead of creating slaves, we, we create followers. Mm. What, uh, what do you think of that whole bit? Uh, which, it, which speaks to your, your doubt, your sowing seeds of doubt as well. Yeah. Uh, that in combination with her calling out EO as an off color name, Without really giving it much pushback with his like, oh, didn't you hear? I'm a far world, whatever. Far planet hayseed. hayseed. Yep. Um, like there's she there's so much wrong with the story that EO is setting or that Jesus. Why do I keep Mustang. saying EO? Because <laughs> you uh, think no, that Darrow is setting forth. Oh, okay. uh, so much like if anybody were like if the. uh Arch governor, we're having this conversation with Darrow. He would see right through everything, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think most golds would, but she's either intentionally letting it go for the sake of letting him have his secrets or whatever, or she's genuinely not noticing his lies. Um, and she seems too smart for that, too cunning for, for things like that. So, with her singing the song of Persephone, her 
dropping the live for more uh, phrase. Like there's just there's just a dense and maybe it's just done as a way of like kind of beating it over the head that Mustang reminds Darrow of EO. But maybe it's her dropping subtle hints without actually saying out loud that she knows a little bit more than what she's leading on about Darrow's past. Hmm. So the hard part here is to not say anything, obviously. Uh, I know. <laughs> but what what I think is interesting, based on what you're saying, I, I want you to imagine the what if not what you just said scenario. So what if she has no idea about Darrow? Why is she... What's her motivation behind thinking this way? Why does she think differently than other golds? I'm not disowning that. I just want to hear your disconnected mm, I can see hypothesis. Just uh, interactions with with lower colors in her upbringing. Maybe she fell in love with uh, what uh, rust? Not rust. What's the what's the higher level of red? I don't know. I think or, it's just uh, called high red. High red. Sure. Yeah. High red. Low red. But falling in love with a servant at her home as a gold and like realizing that they're people and that they've mm-hmm. been treated like shit um, and probably undeservedly so and that a lot of the golds are in power for the sake of being in power because of who they were born into and like understanding the problems with the hierarchy that she's been born into and wanting to do something better yeah do something to change that kind of having that in her in her mind as she's growing kind of forms her personality around that central idea um, and maybe produces someone like that. Totally. And I think both assumptions are great and like good to go down in terms of like ideologies. I agree with you. I think I lean towards believing that in, in my own head, I lean towards believing that she had some kind of inside information on Darrow and or was a red in, in my first read. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like everything Everything at the time kind of feels like it's lining up in the same way that it did with Titus, but more gradually, except for some of the stories that are told. Right. I I feel like one of the giveaway stories that she tells that leads us to believe that she's perhaps a red also is the story of how she lost her brother and how how similar that kind of is in some degree to Darrow losing a sibling as well or not a sibling losing EO. Jeez. Um, (laughs) Losing EO, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a similar compassionate loss story, right? In in that kind of way. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, it's also the other thing that I'm thinking about and don't really have any solid grasp on or solid connection to is um, whatever EO said to her sister before her execution. Oh yeah, we. I feel like was could have been passing information on to someone like mustang pj you're becoming such a good observant reader i'm so proud <laughs> i'm so proud no that's that's a really good callback because we actually don't know what she said no, it's never moments. been mentioned it's never it has never been revealed up until this point yeah that's that's a great call it, uh, it does pose a big question mark right but with with the similarities between eo and mustang i feel like that could be a connection somehow Sure. Familiarly. Sure. Do you are are there any other connections that you would draw? Uh probably, but I don't know. None that you can think of right now? <laughs> Not off the top of my head. Okay. Okay. Cool. Oh, if if I come across another one, I will make prob- sure to stop everything in its tracks and just say, Oh, another connection right there. Probably mention it. Okay. 
Cool. So I, I want to kind of skip over the Oathbreakers for now because we get an entire chapter on them. And I feel like this almost belongs in that chapter. But we'll, we'll get back to that section. OK, I want to, I want to talk about Fitchner first and then we'll talk about the Oathbreakers altogether. We, we obviously we actually hear the full version of Persephone's song, right? Yes. Which is great on audiobook. May I may I recommend um, All right. Good to know. For th- for those that have the access to it, it is fantastic. I believe it was also released on YouTube so that it can be listened to. Um, if you search Song of Persephone Red Rising, it's been covered at least a half a dozen times. I, I'm i going to have to cut this if it's not accurate, but I believe Lindsey Sterling also made a violin version for someone else singing it. So it's like it has like a legit semi following, okay. which is cool. Um, anyway. What do you think of the actual poetry of the section? Because it's very different and we get kind of the full song, all of the verses included. Was there anything you pulled out of the, I the think song? What you just said kind of hits it. It is straight up poetry. More than more than lyrics, it is straight poetry. I, I had a hard time really trying to think of how to put music to it, but it is a beautifully written poem. I'd like to listen to that. Um or a, a variety of those recordings that you mentioned that kind of put it to music, but just to see how it differs from my own thoughts. But God, so, it's a gorgeous so song. Just just speaking to the way that it's written, it's written kind of like an Irish ballad. So it, it does kind of have a sort of meandering. In, in all honesty, some of the pacing reminds me it's, of the theme of Harry Potter, of all things. But a little bit slower, okay. a little bit more. It, it's it, got kind of that. It Irish. almost feels like it'd be bleak. Yes, it is. It's uh, what's the song? Oh, Danny. Da- oh, Danny boy. Uh, the pipes, the pipes. Um, OK, OK. Yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if if you think of that, it's it's got a kind of similar tone to it in the way that it's written, saying everything else. It's very okay, much I like an see ode that. or a ballad. Um. Yeah, I could see that. But I, anything you pull from I was words. Ex- Expecting more of a conversation on the use of the word Reaper. Yeah. What it- and the fact that Darrow is the Reaper in this, mm-hmm. right. In right, this right. game. What What is it? A game? The Trial? Institute? It's kind of a game, a test. For, for some of the golds, it feels like a game. For Darrow and the people who are like trying for Primus, it's more of a test. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of varies depending on what you're going for. And whose perspective you're looking from. Yep. It definitely is set up to be game-like with a winner. Um, yeah, it's it's gamified reality, kind of like Ender to some degree, right? Ender didn't know, of course. Spoilers. Which uh, but. he is mentioned. Yeah, he actually is in this. He's name-checked. Wigan is name-checked in this section. Yep. Which, which is uh, I phenomenal. found really funny that... He's on the front cover. Uh, Ender is on the front cover and Wigan is called out as somebody to. Uh, what? So this a kid great is what? General. A pre, uh, predestined Alexander, a Caesar, a, Gang- a Genghis, a Wigan, mm-hmm. I ask. Slagging nonsense. Yep. I yep. fucking obviously <laughs> like we'll, we need to talk about the picture and conversation in full. Uh, right. But any any other comments on the Reaper? Obviously, there's the allegory between Darrow being the Reaper and the 
title of the chapter being the Reaper, and obviously this is the Reaper's song. What do you what do you think about those connections? Um, the other the other thing is winter. Are they kind of in the midst of winter right now? I think it's winter time. Yeah, no, no, no. They they they're like just at the start of winter, and then they they hit like deep winter as this chapter yes. and section proceeds forward. So the I mean the talk the talk of the seasons kind of lining up with what's happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, my son, my son, remember the burn when leaves were fire and seasons turned. We fell and fell and sang a song to weave a cell all autumn long. It, hear the reapers sing a tale of winter long is the end of that verse, mm-hmm. which I would like to take as sort of preemptive, a, a prelude to like, this is the time for Darrow. The winter is when he's going to be rising and coming into power, truly. Okay. I don't know if that was intended, but that's what I'm positing right now. <laughs> I, I can tell you something really interesting. Um, this is kind of a, a fun fact about Pierce Brown's style. I have read and watched so many things about him talking about writing. Obviously, I'm, I'm fascinated as an exploring writer as well. And so one of the things that he does his one of his processes when he's trying to get over writer's block or get over like a character problem. First, he takes a glass of a pork whiskey. He downs it to start. Second, he immediately starts to do like word association, creating a word map of what he thinks the character is or like some of the raw words that he kind of attaches with the character. And then his third step is he writes a flourishy, non-important poem, just brief, maybe five lines, six lines or whatever to explain whatever it is about the character that he wants to get out, but he has to use those words and connect them in some way. So with word association, he kind of creates this this sort of mental image and mental poetry of the character and moves it that way and in that direction. And I think especially in the Reaper song, just as you picked apart, that is so evident here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm now convinced. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, that, convinced I'm right <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that's like early fascination to some degree like the, the people who watch all that stuff will understand but yeah it's uh mm-hmm. it's it's interesting it's definitely a an, an interesting technique and for the most part he doesn't actually put the poems in but this is his first book and naturally the reaper song the song of persephone is so important to um to eo to the dream to everything else that mm-hmm. actually having it in there is important. So I can't help but agree with you and your prospect. I don't know if that's true. And if that's the way that he set out to do this as he wrote the poem and then decided that, that was going to be the structure for the end of the book. Um, it, but it's I can see the that way I'm taking way. it. It almost looks it almost feels like a prophecy. OK. Is the way I'm looking at it. Like uh, when leaves were fire and seasons turned, we fell and fell and sang a song. I'm assuming the leaves would be the children and it's tumbling and it's chaotic and everything's kind of meshing together and floating down to the ground. Fire being kind of aggressive and leaves don't last long, but burn very mm-hmm. brightly. Um, very true. And Mars, similarly, mm-hmm. is described as burning very brightly. Yeah. So I, I like to think Mars, that I'm right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know All right. I'm going to leave it at that. 
Well, we'll, we'll move forward from there. So uh, we get to Fitchner, right? So we move from the conversation about that. Uh, we'll talk about the oath break- breakers and some of the interactions in the cave and kind of the way that goes in the second year. I think it's important to talk about with the way the next chapter goes. But uh, Fitchner, what do you think about uh, the, the conversation with Fitchner? Fitchner obviously spills a big secret inside of a silent bubble with Darrow, uh, which is interesting. The Proctors uh, are uh, are cheating to help the Jackal win. Right. And clearly, I think it's more clear here than ever that Fitchner doesn't want to come out and say, like, hey, I'm helping you and trying to, like, fix what the rest of the Proctors are doing by giving you this information and kind of coyly playing like, oh, no, I didn't mean to let out this information. Um, I think he knows that Darrow's smart enough to understand that he's kind of stuck in his place as as a proctor not really able to change anything about how the game is being played also sees kind of the injustice that's being done by i don't know fixing it right he's clearly frustrated with kind of the hypocrisy of the entire society being based around meritocracy meanwhile you know you you can effectively pay for winners in the way that uh, it's been rigged in the Mars Institute with Nero Augustus's mm-hmm. child. Right. I think Darrow took even more information than Fitchner was trying to give him, though. Do you Specifically, think information. Him? No, uh, I, I'm saying his his Darrow very slyly gaining information on the like pulse shields mm-hmm. and stuff and their ability to turn it on and off at will the location of the device that produces the shield all all kind of small but important pieces of information that most people probably don't have or maybe they do maybe maybe most golds do because of their upbringing with i don't know uh technology like that around them and darrow's just kind of catching up to understanding how a pulse shield works and where it's worn and how it can be turned on and off. I don't know about that, but the fact that he was able to gain that information, I think it was really important to him mm-hmm. and not necessarily what Fitchner was setting out to give him. I, uh, I I agree with you on on the side of the information that he acquired kind of by his own vision, sight, other things like that. What I, what I think is also interesting is that we're given also the perspective of strategy that is Darrow for the rest of the section, right? His goal has changed from winning and beating other students to how do I eliminate proctors that are helping the students to cheat against me? Right. I liked the uh, the proctors gave it to the jackal. He tells me which ones Apollo, all of us doesn't matter. Yeah, like, right. It's Apollo. Like, take out Apollo first. <laughs> that, that, is, that is kind of a nice, <laughs> nice, obvious, like, jab at Apollo. Especially because Apollo was one of the people that was looking at him early and passed him over, right? So it feels extra. You know, Darrow was obviously drafted in the first round, effectively. But ultimately not a first draft for that house, you know? We also, you know, it's, it's interesting because... Fitchner also kind of gives him an out, right? He says that there are a number of people that are going to be very successful and Darrow doesn't have to win necessarily because Lorne Arcos, the Rage Knight, sort of House Mars previously has taken to him, right? He's the third most powerful man. He's already betrayed Cassius, kind of, in the Bologna family. 
uh, with mm-hmm. with killing Julian. So he's probably not in there, and he's he doesn't probably want to be in close proximity with Nero Augustus because of the bullshit that's happened there. Obviously, with the killing of Eo, even though Augustus doesn't know that. So third place probably feels pretty good, especially with someone who is a knight attendant to the sovereign. Right. Speaking of, we also know that he's, everyone else knows that he's been also lying to Cassius. Not only has he killed Julian. Mm -hmm. So doubly so probably doesn't want to spend time with the Bolognas. Um, Rage Knight seems pretty fucking chill as far as like a boss goes. Feels like a good option. <laughs> Feels like a good uh, good fit for him so far. But also, isn't necessarily the position that he wants to get to, right? Like, I feel like that's... If he, if he was actually setting out to live in gold society and be a like high-ranking gold, yes, that's great. But I think he wants more power than that. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll agree with you on that front. I think that he definitely is seeking the maximum position from the Institute. And he sees third place as a distant third. Not not as though like he he feels like he could win and he should strive mm-hmm. to win because of his circumstances and situation. So he's not willing to settle for it. But all things considered, it's definitely kind of a win for him to go for something like that, you know? Like, even if that's, like, his last option, that's better than dying, like Titus. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. Makes me really wonder what Titus's actual plan was. I think he was just so consumed by rage that he couldn't see through it or see past it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you'd think he'd need something a little bit more than that to get as far as he did, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think he was just an instrument of rage who they thought might peel through in some way. But it also, you know, who's to say who put him in there for what reason and why? So any anything else on Fitcher? He drops the fact that his ring is a camera. Mm-hmm. Biometric nano cam. Like he, he gave him so much de- like detailed information on how this game is being observed. He and the fact that there's people that edit everything, it's on a half day delay. Like he knows a lot about the back end of this thing. I, I don't know if you remember the Hunger Games so well. I don't. I, I know you didn't never, read them. Never saw it. You, you never saw them either. You didn't read them mm-hmm. or see them. I might have seen the first one, but Jesus Christ. OK, so there's a character, Hamish, who reminds me of Fitchner a lot. Okay. Uh, he's he's a he's a drunk and, you know, he's he's there. He's a survivor of the Hunger Games in a previous year. He won. So he's one of the 24. You know, he was the only one that survived out of 24 kids. And Fitchner, to some degree, reminds me of him where it's like you want to let your person know as much as you can as possible. But also like they they have to face a brutal reality and you have to face the brutal reality of what's to come. So I, I feel like Fitchner isn't really holding anything back at this point because he knows that Darrow's worth that additional knowledge and that he'll take advantage of it going forward. But mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. We we get a final note, though, on the Fitchner conversation, which I think warrants conversation as well. He hands him the Pegasus locket of his house that has the Hemanthus blossom locked inside. Where do you think that came from? Who gave that to Fitchner? Who delivered that? Uh, it's so personally important to Darrow. First, that would be Severo. 
how would Severo know? And how would Severo get it to Fitchner? Not that I, I disagree. I just want to explore your Well, your he's always had it. He's had it with him. Um, the locket got stripped uh, from him during the passage. Did it? I'm pretty sure. I thought he had it during, like, while he was in the Institute. Maybe I'm completely mistaken. He might have lost it at some point. Because um, I thought he brought it up. in with him to the Institute. So he, he loses it in the passage and then he gets it back now of all times. And it kind of feels like a reassurance of faith to some degree um, in, in that kind of sort of familial, friendly, not friendly, but familial and personal way. And it feels strange for that to be coming from Fitchner because he is more the wisdom, advice, intelligence sort of person on the team. Right. But we do now know about how extensive their sort of surveillance is of things. Maybe he was seen taking comfort with this previously, and it was uh, in his personal effects. And Fitchner knew maybe it would give him some hope going forward. Yeah. I like to think that Fitchner is in on the uh, Sons of Aries. Yeah. Tell, tell me more. I don't have anything connecting them. I have no solid evidence, but they would know about the this object. Who gave him the the Pegasus to begin with? It was uh, uh, Dancer, right? Yep. Dancer's pretty big deal within that organization. Probably has some pull outside of that organization as well. And if Fishner's kind of in on that that'd be a good sort of uh silent sign and silent um passing of understanding and knowledge of the sons of Aries. sure without having to say it out loud yeah i i think um, that's go ahead that flower is completely subterranean as well isn't it I don't know that it is, but it definitely blooms subterranean. It would have some pretty huge implications of like who he's actually dealing with. If Fitchner knows that he even has ties to the subterranean reds, let alone being one. Of, of course, of course, that would have huge, huge. Was was that intended for like from from Fitchner's point of view, do you think that was I, I think that could have been intended to be a like, hey, I know I'm with you. Let's fucking do this kind of gift Con confirmed that it's not underground. <clears throat> oh, it, it just blooms on Mars. Gotcha. But yeah, either way, I don't know. It seems like it'd be either straight up from Fitchner and House Mars as a whole, having had some surveillance and knowing that that object brought him comfort, or ties to Dancer. Yeah, I, I think I think that's really interesting as far as that goes. I, I feel like they're both, like the Pegasus is the symbol of his house right now, Andromedus, which... You know, like while it is a far hayseed and they're pulling it off as like this this thing where the family has died and doesn't exist. It's likely that the family did exist. Right. 
Oh, it did that. That's a sign. Um, he he was supposed to take on the the name of the of the, that child. Right, right. So they all died, and supposedly he was going to be a the survivor. Only survivor. Yep. And he fought to keep his name, and they changed the records so that that kid had the name of Darrow. Definitely, definitely. So I I think that it's interesting because I the, hadn't thought about that. The hamanthus means nothing, and this symbol of the ha- like it's flower. Of course, it's like a rose to us, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Pegasus symbol is just the symbol of his house, right? So what does that I mean? Hadn't, I hadn't thought about the fact that that makes it a little bit more innocent and less. That makes me because he has to say the name EO for it to get for it to open up to show the pedal. Mm-hmm. So not that Fitcher would know that either way. No, Fitcher would, wouldn't know that, but he would know about his family and that the Pegasus was the symbol of his house. And this was probably more of a, here's a little creature comfort from home. That makes me less, less conspiracy theory coming through. Okay. (laughs) More just like, this is, this is something that would bring you comfort because it's the symbol of your fallen family. Yeah. Which is, you know, a big deal to these people. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. And given, even though he... Even though it would have been misplaced in his intentions of giving him the Pegasus to remind him of his family, he's still giving him the contents of the Pegasus to remind him of the family. So, right. like, regardless of his intentions, he's he's giving him something very meaningful and a reminder of home. Of course. Cool. Well, we talked a lot about that. I was actually shocked about how long that went on. Um which is yeah. good because there, there's a lot there to break down with Fitchner. So that's a that's a good combo. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about Chapter 35, Oathbreakers. And part of Chapter 35, like I said, I kind of cut out the conversation about the initial raid on the cave that happened. Um, mostly yeah. because it, it felt like it, it was it was in the chapter to spice up the chapter a little bit to give it some meat. Um, I agree. It, it didn't seem like it was necessary, but it it did kind of accelerate the the action. I, th- I think it was kind of necessary. So what I what I would the, say the scene itself was it, but it would have made more sense in this chapter. I think I, I do and I don't think so. So I, I see where you're coming from with it. What I would say is that getting the introduction to the Oathbreakers in the previous chapter is good because when they get let go. So just just for an explanation's sake, basically the two People, slaves that had left the capture that are bound to be shamed people from the Institute have decided to raid the cave that Darrow and Mustang are in. They catch tracks of them early and it, it kind of happens. Ultimately, Darrow catches them off guard as they're looking into potentially rape Mustang. And he and she let them free, either taking their hot knives and stabbing them and probably killing them with them or going out and facing the snow. Right. And I feel like some of that plays into Mustang's methodology with how she approaches the Reaper and the mythology of the Reaper and the strategy behind using the Reaper. So I I think it's a bit deeper than, and and that's why it's important to lay those seeds early is because they're going to run out. They might run into other people and tell the story. Right. Which is why I think you'd put it in the chapter previous. Mm-hmm. versus keeping it all in one but all told 
it could all be in one too. So yeah, I, 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 I guess that's a, that's a good point though. You planted like, early for the payoff a little bit later, but yeah. And I don't have an actual complaint about it, but that makes sense. I really kind of wanted to see Darrow murder him. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I think it's, I think it leads into a better story. The fact that he doesn't. He could have. He, he definitely could have. He wanted to. Yeah, no, he, Even, he definitely did. He really wanted to because he was convinced that they would get raided, letting mm-hmm. them go. Yeah, and he thought that that was going to be the worst thing. He was like, whatever, they they come here, it's winter, what are they going to get? Like a fire? Okay, neat. And uh, I, I think Mustang's voice of reason here, even though sick at the time, is interesting. But yeah, so I feel like a lot of this chapter is pretty straightforward. Um, the way the Oathbringer Breakers are gathered, first almost causing a rumor, like I said earlier, by letting the Reaper like go two of them. And later when they befriended Millie is very interesting. It befriended slash ambushed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you what do you think of the entire operation as it went with uh, with the Oathbreakers? So, first of all, the existence of the Oathbreakers was really interesting to me in that I was unsure of the mechanics of the slavery, I guess. I didn't I didn't realize that they had the free will to disobey, you know? Yes. I was yep. I wasn't sure if it was some sort of magic or I don't know, some sort of compulsion to serve the house and I I I didn't quite understand why they would just choose to serve until the explanation of like these shamed breakers of the slaves, like breakers of their own slavery. But in doing so, they're probably never going to get anywhere in life. Right. Right. By choosing to free themselves in the instance of the Institute, they're effectively losing any claim that they might have on anything that they did successfully inside of the Institute. So they they mm-hmm. lose. Yeah, they're they are the worst of the worst at that point because they aren't following the rules. Wherein the enslaved are, it, it's kind of like being tagged in tag. Like it's all it's all good faith, right? When someone hits you on the back, you're like, oh shit! Well, I'm it now, and it's just a, a series of I'm it's, and they've just they've baked it into society so far that there's this aggressive I'm it slave culture where it's like, oh, I have to go chop down fucking trees. Uh, until this year is over and someone wins. Like I'm I'm going to end up someone's slave unless my house is in control. Right. So it it was something that I had never considered. That because I, I had just assumed that there was some sort of compulsion. The fact that there was a sigil that kind of embedded itself in the forehead of any of the slaves made me think that maybe there's something controlling their minds as well. Hmm. Fair. Um, but the fact that um, Dara was kind of able to rally them was really cool. And we've got some of Minervan's, like some of the Minervan slaves that... We're talking about Milia, right? Yeah, Milia. Who was she Milia, initially? Milia, Dax... Uh, she was initially Mar- like a slave of Mars, right? I 
don't know that she was. The mark of Mars becomes that of Minerva. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm having trouble remembering the exact details of this specific section. There, so there's a lot here that happens, right? So right, exactly. There there are conversations that go on basically around the group of Oathbreakers and the houses that they're in originally and how that's handled kind of for all of them a, going forward. Yeah, it's a lot of information. It, it is, and it's also a lot of... It, it's a combination of a lot of plot and a lot of kind of shifting rules to fit Mustang's guidelines, right? Like, you, you don't want slaves... But maybe you make slaves initially and you make them earn their freedom underneath you. And then you free them from slavery to make them a part of your house. And that's that's the way that kind of the game is played, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Um, just to ensure that they're loyal more than anything else. It's it's not about their productivity. It's not about anything else. It's it's about loyalty to make sure that they aren't betraying. Right. It it is about loyalty, but it also leans on the, the sort of myth of the Reaper. Right. Um, Which is why I think in in a way of gaining credibility. Oh, totally. Which is why I think that earlier section that we just talked about is so important because it it leans on the myth. It leads them to leave and run away and maybe tell more people about the myth of the Reaper. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Earlier in the Fitchner section that we talked about, too, we talked about the the one eyed devil like Fitchner talks about the one eyed devil um, as well as the uh, the jackal. So it's it's kind of interesting how those things get juxtaposed, you know, in addition to, OK, well, maybe I need to create a story around myself. How do I do that? He's not doing that intentionally at first, but now now that he's realized what he can do, he starts to kind of do it intentionally. Then they they attack. Who do they attack first? They ultimately raid a group in Mars. So they, they raid a group of Mars troops. After they get Milia, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, there, there are continuous battles between Mars and Jupiter as they continue to attack each other wave after wave of cal- cavalry. Cassius yep. jumping in, everything else. Ultimately, Darrow says, speed is our strategy. Speed and extreme prejudice. And they move on from that. They ultimately take out the four hydrafts that are watching a couple of, or a dozen slaves, and in that freeing of those slaves, they add to their group a number of people, including the prize packs, packs. which getting packs <laughs> is huge, <laughs> of course. Oh, packs. Oh, packs out, Telemannus. So we get both packs, packs out, Telemannus. Packs out, Telemannus. Uh, we get both packs and tactics, ta- tactics. Um, added to the army, which is great. Mm-hmm. Pax and Tactus added to the army. And, and Tactus was um, Minervan, right? Diana. Diana. Yep. The woods yes. people. Yep. Oh, yes. The woods people. The yep. Tactus was, what, what, did, what, what was it? Uh, Severo's belly buddy? <laughs> yeah, later. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The, I love that term. The horse, horse belly That's buddy. later on, though. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely good. And I, um, I also like the moment that Pax kind of has with Darrow. It's very like it's it's interesting because it shows a, a varied respect that's came from the duels that they've had over time. You know, Pax almost killed him in the first duel. 
<laughs> by like crunching him to death with his arms and everything After else. tackling his fucking horse. Yeah. And then Darrow kicked Pax- him in the balls like five times. <laughs> burst both of them, right? And then finally, like Darrow won a second <laughs> duel with uh, with his sling blade that Pax is just not ready for. Right. Uh, after like not having to finish that fight, but deciding to. It's a... Uh, their relationship, their friendship and growth is interesting because it's one out of like mutual it's, respect. Yeah, it's it's born out of respect and understanding of each other's like abilities on the battlefield, I guess. Mm-hmm. So and that's truly what Pax respects, I think, more than anything is physical confrontations. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pax, Pax reminds me. Uh, if you really, like, if I'm really thinking about it, would be, uh, oh, was it George in Of Mice and Men? Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of simple, but, but big yeah. and intimidating and just good at what he does, which is fucking people up. You know, that's, that's fair. I, I definitely wouldn't discount that. Was it George that. or was George the small guy? Le- uh, was it Lenny, George and Lenny? Lenny was the, Lenny, Lenny was the Lenny. Dude. Yeah, George was yep, that. Lenny. Yep, yep, yep. So repeat what you just said. No, I'll I'll let my mistake go. Well, I don't read much. Right, uh, right, Lenny fine. is who I'm thinking of. George is, hey there, big guy. Like, take it easy. Oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. George is the more intelligent but smaller and kind of the leader of the two. Whereas Darrow's just big and more intelligent. Yeah, I mean, Pax is like the size of an obsidian and literally relays a story where he fell in love with an obsidian (laughs) in New Zealand. No less. Isn't isn't Darrow almost that big also, though? I like my understanding is he's not really that much smaller than Pax. Uh, No, he's significantly smaller. Like, so Darrow... Uh, is so Pax is over seven feet tall, mm-hmm. and Darrow is just barely over six feet tall. No, that can't be true. Oh yeah, I feel like we've talked about him being taller than I was. Uh, yes, but we were wrong. Oh, right. So, like, I I swear I remember them saying that he was more than two meters tall. Darrow is about six. Four, if I remember, and Pax is over seven. That's feet fucking tall. nothing. Pax is around seven four. Okay, yeah, Pax is fucking massive. Um, he's he's literally meant to be like the paragon of. Um, he's kind of like an iron gold, l- but he isn't actually an iron gold. He's a little bit taller than my tallest relative, which is fucking nuts. <laughs> Unnecessary to mention that fact. <laughs> so you you think yourself a telemannus, huh? Uh, no, no. But I think myself a little bit bigger than Darrow now, and it kind of puts things into perspective. Like I could do this shit. Okay, okay, PJ. no, <laughs> okay. No, I I I could have sworn we had a conversation about Darrow being bigger than me. Oh yeah, no, he's seven one. There you go. All right. There you go. He's barely smaller than Pax. But still, 
Pax is fucking <laughs> huge. So is Darrow, though. But Darrow is not 7'1 to begin with. He was 5'10. Right. Well, right. of course. I'm talking now. Like, them, like, their interactions Sorry, have just five, been. Four. With... Oh, my God. Oh, anyway. Okay. <laughs> but I'm talking about their sort of interactions with each other and their mutual yeah. respect. And I feel like a lot of that, from Pax's point of view, is the fact that they're kind of on equal footing on the battlefield. And a lot of that has to do with their size. That's, that's kind of fair. And it definitely like they're, they're close to each other, but it's not the same. So moving on um, from there, where are we? (laughs) We're we're on page 289. If you're following there, Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm just, what are we talking about? So Dura proves to be like very clever in these chapters, which I think is kind of a changing of his tune. Um, from one of force, you know, he previously talked about himself being a blunt instrument. Um, right. But but he's also always talked about his ability to um, understand those sort of think outside the box. Yeah. Complex uh, situations. What did they call that? I don't remember. Anyway, but yes, he he is um, definitely a clever. One. Was there any moment in the Oathbreaker chapter that stood out to you specifically? Um, no. Cool. All right. Moving forward. Nope. Uh, not other than just. Yeah, I know. There's, there's I barely focused anything a lot on PAX. I only had like three minutes. It's cool. Um, I, I, poke, I focused a lot on PAX in my, in my thinking. <clears throat> That's fair. Tactus kind of goes by the wayside. So chapter 36, a second test. So the, the entire chapter centers around capturing the series ovens and kind of takes the focus of the section <laughs> of the novel. And man, is the fucking siege awesome. But we'll we'll get to that in a second. I, I kind of giggled on 293 at Mustang, you know, kind of making an amends to talking with Darrow and being like, you know, you haven't slept like slept near me in a bit. Um, and she makes a joke about like freezing your balls off. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think the relationship is just awesome. Like the, there's there's a good amount of humor there. I'm not saying relationship in the lovey dovey way. I mean, like they're sort of. It I is blessing fl- into that, though. It is a flirtatious friendship, but I think it's it's it it actually isn't that dissimilar I think to the both of them want it to be more than that. Yes, and I'd say that it's not that dissimilar from the way that other golds also interact with other golds, right? Like Tactus talks very similarly to the way that Mustang does. Mustang just adds like relationship inflections to some degree, right? Where yeah, she's like, there's almost so. like an undertone of expectation almost a double speak to it yeah right but um i I giggled at that yeah so yeah that's fair we get this awesome battle for taking the castle which is just phenomenal um we find out the series has dogs now somehow from the proctors probably Mm, i think they caught and domesticated wolves I don't think so, because Ceres has <laughs> refused to leave their walls for the most part. Mm. Mm. They lured the wolves in. OK, I'm going with no. Yep. Yep. No, uh, I'm with you. But uh, I kind of like it, it's it's tough because obviously it's animals and like you don't wanna, you don't wanna laugh or like cry at anything. But like the fact that Darrow just like literally throws one off the rampart is both funny, kind of, and also brutal because it's a dog. I don't know. I don't know how I feel yeah. about that. Oh, 
I'm looking at this page at page 294 and I see the word Helldiver and I'm thinking about something that I think happened way farther back, but I'd like to revisit. Yeah, do it. Um, and that was Mustang's challenge to Darrow for some of the dexterous based activities that were quote unquote impossible <laughs> to like move one hand one way and like twirl a baton in the other hand a different direction and he just fucking does it <laughs> yeah no that's that's true that's actually a really good point i i totally skipped over that that entire like lesson between the two of them is very fascinating as far as it goes with their relationship because it's like well you can't like rub your stomach and pat your head at the same time can you but he's like yeah i fucking can it, it very much like felt like that. She's like, "All right, all right, let me break your thumb real quick, and we'll prove the point." Uh, exactly. But yeah, it's it, it it speaks into the narrative of their plan with slaves and how to make slaves actual people as they should be, because you don't want to lead slaves; you want to lead people who believe in you. The barking of dogs. Yep. We look like squirrels, not wolves. <laughs> yep. They're obviously all oh, wearing they're, wolf folks because they've been hunting yeah. and living in them forever. Smell like rotting flesh until they finally Except for clean Pax. it out. Except for Pax, who can't find one until there's a bear later and maybe that fits. But <laughs> I loved that so much. Yeah. Uh, I loved that specifically because this weekend I was camping and it was way too fucking cold. It was like I don't know, 20 degrees, 15 degrees, something overnight. And uh, I couldn't fit into the sleeping bag. It just wasn't wasn't long enough for me. So I had to like duck into it. But like over the course of the night, I obviously wasn't like maintaining that position. So I was just fucking freezing throughout it. Um, and it made me think of Pax trying to fit into a wolf pelt. Pack, so tell him on it's yep. <laughs> failing to fit, fit into a wolf pelt. Yeah, he was probably yep. pretty cool, but he's large, so it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how you felt? Yep. That's. I think that's. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the message I'm trying to get across is uh, <laughs> I'm large, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, I, I really liked Milia's line on 295 as well, talking about the dogs uh, or the the line about Milia rather. Uh, she bites a dog in the neck and punches it into the in the balls <laughs> till it whimpers off. It's like, wow, whoa, whoa, First dude! Of all, how do you get into a position where you can do both of those at once? I mean, you kind of the dog is between your legs, right? And it's like you just you're munching on its neck. Yeah, I you're guess just munching so. On it, and then you're you're just punching it underhand, low jabs. Low, low jabs, real low jabs, real low jabs, low and back below the wolf belt, <laughs> the dog belt. Oh, no, which, uh, but yeah, the, the, uh, this entire the, all of the scene is just so great, right? Because then we we move to them like jumping down to the gate and barely barely repelling it. Millie is shooting people with arrows, trying to get them to stand back, and they finally open the gate, and who comes charging through? Pax out, Telemanos. Backs out, Delamarus. And he picks up a boy by the legs and uses him as a club. <laughs> Which just... What? Um, uh, boys and girls fly through the air like chaff on Reaping Day. 
Yeah, which is great. Um, so so before before we move on from this, though, I, I wanted to ask the, the question about the adaptation. If you had to pick someone that wasn't the mountain for PAX, who would you pick? Oh, it'd be animated. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm see like when I'm everything else in my mind is like actual real life. But Pax is an animation. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Legitimately, I've been trying to think about this. <laughs> and all I can imagine is Pax as, as a cartoon. Um, but to be perfectly frank, uh, I think you'd have to do something similar to... Uh, but opposite of... The hobbits in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and take somebody and make them bigger, superimpose them to be bigger. Gotcha. Cause I don't necessarily see him like the, I don't see him as the mountain where he's this like, he's obviously tall, but he's also fucking wide. Yep. I see him more as, um, not skinny, but just kind of, to shape almost like a spartan in halo yeah like he he's just kind of really tall and jacked but not imposing without having all of the weight yes with it got it yes really yeah a spartan from halo is kind of what i imagine without the armor obviously um so i don't know who who could play him really well i don't know like young actors that well i don't know actors at all that well but it'd have to be somebody really young and super tall probably uh an up-and-coming basketball player that so i don't think that's a bad call um if i had to choose right now under the gun i would say you could convince me that like charlie hunnam could play this character as the way he built Don't himself out like is. a beast. Uh, he, he's in the most like recent Guy Ritchie movie. He's been in two Guy Ritchie movies, actually. Um, what was the most recent Guy Ritchie movie? The Gentleman. Aladdin? The Gentleman. Sorry. Okay. He was in that one, and he was the main character in King Arthur. He was also in Pacific Rim. Oh, okay. Um, he, he played Arthur in King Arthur, uh, but also he played one of the main characters in The Gentleman, which was excellent. But I haven't seen the gentleman. Needless yet. to say, in King Arthur, he was jacked um, beyond belief. And he I think in general, he kind of embodies the kind of like bright faced aggressiveness that I'd expect out of Pax. However, I do agree with you where you kind of have to play with it on film where you have the guy film his shit on step stools and step ladders because he <laughs> has to be that much taller it's not that he's short and he is 40, but he also looks young enough where I think he could portray it for the oh, duration. Oh, no, I, could, I don't think you could do that. It's got to be a kid. He he's 16. Yeah, but they all kind of they all kind of like look young and they like they sound like they're 16, but they act like they're 26. And I don't think they're 16. Like, I there's, okay. there's no part of 16 me. to 16 to 26, even if you go with 26. I feel like you can't put a 40-year-old in that role. But he did King Arthur as a teen in King Arthur. 
So I, I guess I guess for it's, for a short period that was of time. that was three like years for a ago. very small. So no no no, but but as a teen, like he was only a teen in that movie for like a couple scenes. Yeah, I just think it's the, I I think he's as close as I can get without looking at actors that are inconsequential. So if I, if I had to pick a big name, I would pick Charlie Hunnam or something someone like him, if that makes sense. Okay. So I feel like okay. he he fits the bill and if you could cast someone that's younger like him, kudos. Yeah. So the opposition and what I don't think it should be is someone like Andre the Giant. Yes, yeah. Who's he he's obviously fucking huge, but I think he's too wide and bulky to be this character. Like he he would fit the height but he wouldn't fit the slenderness that I think he kind of needs to be to fit this role. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I, I thought about that because I was going to, I was actually going to make comment about Andre earlier because there are moments where he's kind of swinging the big club and it kind of feels like almost like a Lord of the Rings troll to some degree. But I also feel like that's disingenuous to the way that his character is where he does kind of have a nobility about him. Although, there's the the counterpoint is is inside of um, the Princess Bride, Andre the Giant plays a very noble, you know, dude. We were led to believe at a certain point that Pax he, might be mentally acts, slow, but he, he is not. Acts mentally slow. He's certainly not as mentally sharp as Darrow. Yeah, but the fact that he's a gold and he's gotten this far kind of guarantees that he's got some wits about him. Mm-hmm. Like they they don't let people that are dull this far in the competition unless they're blunt blunt instruments like Titus, you know, like there's there's a degree of that that makes it through. Yeah, but I think even Titus had some. um, It's the exception more than it is the rule. But yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. I track. Mm -hmm. So moving on from Pax, we we move towards Tactus, the other um, character here. The other external character that I think is the main focus in these sections. And we kind of hit his like three rebellions, right? So his first rebellion, the first thing that I want to mention before we talk about the rebellions is that Tactus is what we call an iron gold. He is one who has blood descended from the actual golds who did the conquering of Earth, meaning that he is the first, he's a descendant of the first people that laid siege to Earth and set forth the society. So he's considered an iron gold. Okay. Um, so he's kind of like a pure blood to some degree and, and has survived that long. His family has survived that long. So the first of his indiscretions is he ties up a man in his hair with womanly pigtails and defies Darrow and Darrow asks him. He kind of gets in his face about it, says that he's an iron gold, explains that. He then tries to rape a serious girl. And to some degree, for Darrow, it's kind of Titus all over again in some ways. How did you feel about how Darrow handled it? It's on 302. Uh, 302. Okay. I'm I'm a couple pages behind. Yeah. There's there's kind of a lot just, in there. Yeah, there is. Um fucking brutal. Genius. And could be uh exploited in some ways, I think. I don't think anyone would. And I think if any, if he got a whiff that anyone was trying to kind of game his threat, he'd be kind of all over it anyway. 
but um when you when you say threat taking a whipping situation so explain the the scene uh, so so he essentially does he does he actually go through with whipping titus tactus yes tactus tactus he whips him 20 times he does but then makes tactus whip him correct yep and packs after tactus proves not to be strong enough to do it he like makes Pax take over mm-hmm. and it is that is something so unheard of i think i think more than anything the fact that that's something that's not been seen by any of these um golds as a sort of i say it as a threat because i think it was a threat I think it was a show of force and a show of power and a show of strength to take on a whipping of of his own and to call out that he's not being whipped hard enough and take the biggest fucking guy and make him whip him. It really bonds them to him, I think. Yeah, I I definitely agree. One of the one of the things that I find very interesting too about the the whole ordeal is obviously in the front end, like Tactus was, and and there's some there's some debate for a moment, right? Like Nyla, who's the woman, the series slave who was almost raped by Tactus, says no, he doesn't deserve punishment. Like whatever, we we can roll through this as long as it's acknowledged by you. That's okay. And Darrow disagrees and says that it needs to be more extreme. But also Mustang says, did did like. Did your punishment of Titus actually earn you any respect or Darrow's thinking that in his head? And it obviously didn't in in the factor that he wanted it to. It it caused things to be worse. It sort of strained relationships. And so his entire analysis has to be very different approaching. How do I build Tactus? Because like while he can be occasionally a vile person, he's also kind of important to Darrow and Darrow's everything else like he he's i don't i don't want to say he's a replacement for roke but he's kind of like a filler in a similar circumstance right he's tactical yeah, he's, but he's he's definitely filling a similar role yeah right um has some transgressions obviously but um is is someone close to him yeah unlike titus Right, right. So Tactus actually has like a, a relationship with him. And so he has to handle this differently. And also, like you said, it, it sets an example for everyone else. It's a threat to everyone else where it's like, if you defy me, it's not only going to be you that takes the punishment. It's going to be me because I allowed it. And therefore, going forward, also expect you to get more extreme punishment if you disobey the, the sort of like loyalty that we've created. Between all of us, mm-hmm. which I, I like, um, I think it's very I, interesting. I do going a little bit backwards back to the middle of 303 when his arms are weak and so is his will to do it. It still stings, but I stood up after five lashes and give the lash to Pax. They start counting at six. Start over, I shout. A little mm-hmm. rapist cur can't swing hard enough to hurt me, but Pax bloody well can. Yeah, that's. Just the the use of the word cur, mm-hmm. I love. Uh, Especially because he said, like, in, in the previous page as well, like, you deserve to have your balls off, you selfish bastard. He whispered to Tactus. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that it's so, it's so interesting how 
it, it feels very counter the apocalypse now scene with all all of the other scenes that we ever seen with like drill sergeants like being like get the fuck up or like telling people like to do push-ups it's like no i'm going to do the push-ups because you fucked up and i'm also the drill sergeant it, it feels sort of counter in that way which is interesting it, it does um and i don't know if it's just so different that it's kind of shocking his his followers into uh submission submission yeah. i don't know if submission is right it's not it's as close as we can get though i i agree with um that. obedience but obedience that's fair loyalty yeah but at the same time it also weeds out anybody who potentially isn't in it to actually follow him mm-hmm. that hasn't come up right so far i think it's simultaneously a uh, kind of a show of force and a show of compassion, strangely, like whatever transgressions we make, I make mm-hmm. and I'll take the fall for it. But also I can fucking take the fall for it. It's it's hard to describe exactly the feelings that I would have as a follower of his if I saw this happen. There's intimidation. There's respect there's understanding his uh, passion for the cause that they're leading towards. I, I totally agree with you. I, I feel like it doesn't do there, there's no better justice than what's said afterwards. Right. On on 304, the end of this chapter, you know, after standing up from this brutal lashing from Pax, he says, you do not follow me because I'm the strongest. Pax is you do not follow me because I am the brightest. Mustang is. You follow me because I do not, because you do not know where we, you are going. I do. And he motions towards Tactus to come toward me. He wavers, pale, confuses a newborn lamb. Fear marks his face. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the pain I willingly bore. Fear when he realizes how different he is from me. And that, I think, is that moment when it's like, okay, I understand the difference between me being a peerless scarred or just a gold and me being a primus one that should be in charge of everything else. And I feel like that's a realization to some degree for Tactus. Yeah. And then the blood brothers don't, don't right? Don't be afraid. Yeah. I pull him uh, forward into a hug. We are bl- blood brothers. You little shit blood brothers. Yeah. I'm learning with a, you know, later in, in the section. I think it's not this chapter, but next they they make jokes about like Titus or Tactus getting a hard on from his scars on his back, and Dara's like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, totally, totally great chapter and an incredible, incredible arc for Darrow and Tactus. Mm-hmm. Kind of a chilling, con- not conclusion, but uh, climax to that chapter, though. Oh, yeah, that that was a total goose flesh moment for me. I didn't I didn't mention it, but like that passage that I just read, it's like, oh, shudders. It's it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Such such good prose. Here's where we start getting into like they're going south. Uh, The title of chapter 37 Mm -hmm. is south. But this chapter, I think, is the first chapter where we start interacting with the uh proctor apollo right Mm -hmm. 
And this is where I'm coming from when I like distinctly remember that it's winter time because they know this, like know that Apollo is following him because of the straight line marks in the snow following them. Yep. From the grab boots over, over top of the snow. So they know that they're being trailed by proctors, which is interesting. Of course, I I also like something to track on in on 308. I kind of love fake weak Darrow in these conversations and like his entire army kind of playing coy and soft when it comes to like talking yeah. to Novos. Like they're they're they almost act totally benign as far as like a, mm-hmm. a tumor goes in the whole game. Like they're they're the benign tumor, but yeah. Right. Is this is this where he starts kind of like limping? Oh yeah, he he's and moving forward he, and like calling out. Yep, he fakes a limp. He pretends like he's not the reaper. You know, Novas has no idea really of what's going on. Obviously, Apollo knows. And I I also appreciate like the traps that are laid right for for Apollo and Novas. The the like horse screams that happen uh, <laughs> as like Pax had gone out and some other people had gone out and axed out the ice earlier to make it soft, and so they like lose all their horses. And it's just it's it's an interesting section. It's pretty, pretty quick. But I feel like that kind of sums it up. It's like it's it's also like a selling of like how bad some of the other golds are at being tactical. Like there are idiots that are also golds. Yeah, Uh, not necessarily idiots. Idiots, the wrong Um, word. But I mean, like they're not as smart. I think it's just that Darrow knows exactly how they think. Hmm. So you're saying he's playing to them. He is. He clearly is. He's he's saying like he's thinking, I know that if I do this, they'll come raid my camp at night. So let's lay a trap exactly where I know they'll be coming from. I I think it's not that any of the golds are bad tacticians. I think that Darrow is just very good at playing against good tacticians. Fair. I can see that. And I think that was born out of necessity when he was kind of trying to uh, vie for power outside of his own camp. Fair. I mm. I also really like in this section kind of Tactus's sort of pre-boy dialogue. It's just so distinct from other characters, I think. Like he's got kind of this like sharpness and insanity about him that's kind of just like it's it's just like a chef's kiss on top of the whole thing, especially like three ten to three eleven. Um, <clears throat> he kind of just like goes on his own solitary rants about like what do I do, dear leader, and like he he mentions some of these other things. You know, obviously they're talking about the fact that they've been tracked through the snow, as you mentioned. His lips curl into a feral smile, a pleasure, good reaper. It's it's just interesting, <laughs> like made speak. That's it's great. I I love it. Go ahead. Oh, I just good Reaper. Yeah, is a good name. We we quickly find after portions of this chapter, uh, the the proctors are obviously trying to sabotage his chances by cutting his horses loose. So suddenly Darrow has no horses. Doesn't really matter. Darrow gets uh, lured away by Mustang's voice, but very quickly this time versus other times catches on to it being a trap. Uh, gets kicked off of a tree branch by. Uh, Mr. Proctor Apollo and is faced by a bear. Mm-hmm. Duh, bears. Which we kind of alluded to this before. Uh, that bear is then worn by Pax. <laughs> uh, 
So I, I, I almost, so originally in my calendar, I'd cut off the chapter here because I wanted to think about what you thought about the bear and how that would go forward. I decided that the next cliffhanger was better. So I moved it forward kind of at the last minute. But all things considered, the threat of the bear is so short lived. How shocked were you that Severus showed up, showed up here? Not as shocked as I th- think you thought I would have been. Okay. Would have been surprised, certainly. Certainly surprised, but I figured he'd be coming back and there's not that many pages left in the book. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Like it's a little metagamey as far as an answer goes, but it's the truth. I love that he came back. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect him to be the aforementioned one-eyed devil. Ah. Uh. Yes, we'll talk. We'll talk about that, that in a second, which I, I think is worth the conversation. I, I find the nagging question in this book, overlying everything else, is that there's kind of a where is Waldo, but it's where is Severo, all the time. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like I, I don't know where he is. Where, where's he hanging out? What's going on? And what's he doing? Where is Severo? And we, we kind of finally get the answer in this chapter, which uh, I, I enjoy. Uh, but also, you'd mentioned this earlier. Severo and Tactus are ever friendly again on three seventeen. You know, why the limp, my friend? Your mother rode me ragged, but you had to stand on your tiptoes to even kiss her chin. Wasn't her chin? I was trying to kiss. <laughs> uh, and um, Darrow just like finishes that entire thought with they are two very peculiar people <laughs> it's just that I mean they are as you had mentioned previously like horse buddies or or whatever it is belly buddy belly buddies yeah god <laughs> why if it isn't why if it isn't my belly buddy it's just it's so so good and interesting I I love Love that little bit there from the dead. Also, uh, the Minervans fear him. Yep. Tactus and the other single word, dead horses. Yep. I think that's the only time that's mentioned as far as a title goes. Yeah, because. the Um, So it kind of seems like a throwaway title, but it was interesting that it was written that way, I guess. And and to a large extent, the dead horses are the howlers plus the House Diana members that also stuck it out. So. I'm thinking the way I took it was uh, the dead horses were the uh, House Diana members hmm. Fair. that that allied with the Howlers. Sure. Um, I can read that. that but way. because of the previous sentence, the Minervans feared him, Tactus and the other dead horses. That's fair. It seems unimportant to really break that down further than that. Sure. But like you had mentioned, several lost an eye. Um, and he also, you know, explains a couple of different things. I think he obviously talks about the Jackal, which we'll get to in a second. But I liked the way that their friendship grew from this moment when he brought him back, when he brought Darrow back the sling blade. Right. It's just it's great. It solidifies that they are friends beyond this moment, because no matter what, Severo has always been there for Darrow, despite his looming insanity. <laughs> but he's Severo is very... On top of reality, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's kind of explained at the bottom of the same page we were just reading, 317. I always wondered what sort of mad little fellows you howlers were, Mustang says. Little, Severo asks. I didn't mean to offend. He grins. I am little. True. True. Like, he's... 
he's willing to just kind of make people uncomfortable about any sort of comments they make, fully understanding the reality of what what is. Mm-hmm. There, there's an underlying comedy to the way that Severo reacts to everything that is very mm-hmm. good. In in the way that like yeah. a comedian can bring things to light that people are unwilling to say, Severo is kind of that for Golden Society and the Institute in certain ways. Speaking of like uh film adaptation, a very young version of the actor that played Rorschach. James Earl Hale. Is that I don't know who yeah, it is. James Earl Hale. But just kind of long face with a large mouth. Um, is who you kind of scrawny, small? Sorry, Jackie Earl Hale. That's his name. That when I'm imagining what he looks like, he looks a lot like that guy, but a teenager. Hmm. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. I think you're you're not that far off, especially given like his height and stature and everything else, and and uh, disposition. And the way the way he carries himself within that film as he is small and he kind of carries himself as a meek character for the most of, of it outwardly to the public, but is pretty ruthless mm-hmm. and definitely can hold his own. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I, I feel like he would be a good casting if he wasn't, you know, almost 60 years old. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, like I, I do agree with you that like I feel like he plays kind of the same sort of. Like there, there's almost a ruggedness to Severo too that's necessary. Um, so well, of course, like he, he's the kid who's been wanking off in the woods for several months. Which, by the way, may I mention to slash R the Reddit Red Rising, the fact that that is the follower tag there is hilarious. That like I what, giggled. What is it? It's literally if you're if you're on the Red Rising Reddit subreddit at all, it is. So many users wanking off in the bushes. However many people are online or how, however many people are subscribed are wanking off in the bushes. And that's yeah, hilarious. So presently good. at the time of this reading, 16,674 howlers are wanking off in the bushes and just <laughs> too good. That's pretty great. Speaking of, re- real quick shout out. Uh, we, we got our first uh, comment from a Reddit subscriber. Black Boy Yee is, uh, is listening now. So that's a that's a cool ad. Maybe feature that later. Oh, it's cool. cool. Anyway, so yeah, I, I just, I, I love the reintroduction of Severo here. It's great. We kind of move on from that joke, obviously, to the jackal, right? We get the introduction of a reality of the jackal. Which is to say that, like, the jackal tore out Severo's eye, the knife, which isn't great, obviously. Um, and we also get... We, no, I think that's a pretty bad thing. We also get the rest of the story <laughs> of the jackal, though, right? Inside these pages. Am I crazy? I'm trying to remember what that is. Um, does he ever describe him? Doesn't he say... I don't think so he really on, does. On 321, right? He doesn't actually describe the person, but he, he tells about what... The jackal did right. So before before we get to that, though, I think there's one other important thing to mention. I kind of skipped over it um, where they talk ringless, right, where they all decide to pull off the rings. Um, but there are plans to make and God's done do is what Darrow says in his head. They all take off their rings of which Darrow knows are monitored. They're obviously the cameras that everyone else sees through. What do you think they discussed with the rings off? Because 
It's actually not told to us what they talked about. What do you what do you think information was passed? My assumption is he tells them about the fact that the proctors are watching and that the rings are cameras and that they need to be even more careful about their plans because none of it is going to be actually secret. Um, They need to act as if it is. And they need to make plans mm-hmm. um, that can still be done, augmented, potentially, by having the rings off. But any sort of planning that they do with their rings on has to be done in a way that it doesn't actually give away too much to the proctors of the houses that they're attacking. That was my assumption. Totally fair. I, I think I think that's good. And I I didn't know up until later on when it seemed like they all knew after talking to Apollo. And the fact that Severo goes running after meeting with, after drinking all of Apollo's wine. True. True. That's actually a really funny moment. Right. Because it's a great moment. It's it's great. We'll, We'll get there in a second. So we also get kind of the gradual raids in Apollo, right? Kind of post their conversation. We get like them carving the symbol of the Reaper. They're they're raiding halls. They're raiding forts. They aren't actually hitting the castle, but any of the outlying territory. They've made their mark, which is interesting. Spreading kind of the legend of the Reaper, letting all the slaves free, not actually capturing anyone because they want people to go and talk, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But then on three twenty one, we finally figure out how the Jackal himself got his name, right? Which is some wicked shit. We only get like a paragraph's worth worth of space, but it describes him so well. Yeah. When you hear Jackal, what do you think? Not in context of this book. When you hear the term Jackal, what's your first thought? Well, PJ, I think of Mike Birbiglia and Walla Walla Washington. Okay. <laughs> no. You think of but, that. But also, I so like taking it out of the, the Mike Birbiglia joke context, um, my first thought of a jackal is it's a sort of almost a more desperate version of a hyena. You know, it's it's to me, it reminds me of the sort of haunting guys from the Lion King taking out three stretches of starvation to okay. to like a desperate dog. I can I can see that and it can kind of uh, play in parallel with my thought which comes strictly from Halo. Like my rooted in my memory and my understanding of what a jackal is are the shielded covenant snipers. Okay. Um or I guess whatever, whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, they they've got a weak spot. Maybe not snipers, right. but they they've got a very small weak spot, but mostly they're a real small, frail, elongated, I guess yeah, almost hyena-like being. That's a little bit ruthless and a little bit desperate. So the fact that he comes from collapsing tunnels in on himself and living there for several weeks with only water until he like he and his compadres carve their way out kind of makes sense. Yeah. So I, I think I think what you kind of skip over there is the fact that, like, how do you survive in a tunnel for a month with only potentially up to 40 people because 10 of their high drafts died? Right. Like 
the option is cannibalism. Does that not shock you? If a jackal is caught in a trap, it'll chew off its own leg. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Anyway. Um, I mean, that that says a lot about his will, but it doesn't necessarily say a lot about his actual physical. I mean, it says a little bit about his relative physical kind of lording over the rest of his tribe in that he was able to overcome everybody else that was weaker. But it doesn't necessarily say that he's a super like crazy strong person. And the fact that it's there's been a bribe to get him to win and they're doing everything they can to uh, uphold that bribe tells me, A, he's probably pretty good. He's probably like doing pretty well on his own. But it also tells me he's probably not necessarily good enough to win, which gives me which tells me that there's a lot more cheating that Darrow is going to be facing. Okay, interesting. I I definitely see where you're coming from. I feel like the initial circumstance is, is that the jackal got kind of backed into a corner and made a tactical decision to do what he did. But also, yeah, I'm, um, I'm not saying that the rest of it isn't showing the cheating, but like people like Lilath, right, came out of that. They're okay. And House Pluto very clearly still has scouts and other people that exist. So they, they made it out of that initial situation where all of the medbots rushed to the south, right? I don't necessarily believe that Lilath is not in on it. Okay. On, in on the whole um, conspiracy of like cheating to win. Yeah, Got it. like they have they found themselves in a cave in and the proctors came down, kind of let everyone know, hey, this guy's going to win. We're going to make sure he wins. You guys are going to get plush, well-paying jobs going forward. Or we'll kill you if you let anybody else know that you're uh, complicit in this conspiracy. Doing this. That's my okay. thought. Okay. I, I dig I dig that. They've been they've been outfitted with bones and teeth to make themselves look more intimidating. Ion blades and horses before everybody else had the same opportunities. Like everything is going in their favor despite dealing with a cave in, whether or not that actually happened. But where where's that story coming from? That story is being told by Severo. Okay. I, I trust him. I guess that depends on where he heard that story as well. Um, my under, like my stupid conspiracy theory brain <laughs> makes me think that everything coming from that is total bullshit. And uh, all they really have to worry about is actually fighting the proctors that are supplying them with all the weapons okay i i dig that and i also feel like that feeds into kind of the next part of the conversation right which this chapter is the fall of house apollo and we mm -hmm. we also talked to the face of house apollo in proctor apollo right he shows up to a campfire between all of the lieutenants of darrow's and sits himself down with the pulse sphere everything else and also mm -hmm. reveals that he's got a jam field going on. We talked about the flag and a wine. What what do you think his purpose was here outside of like just general fear mongering? I think just straight up intimidation. Okay. I think it was 
intimidation veiled as trying to reason and trying to show how unprepared you are to deal with what you've got in front of you. But I think it was really just like, hey, you're actually fighting me. Mm -hmm. There there are moments there that, that basically say that, like you're actually competing against me and there are other proctors hovering above. Severo is obviously taking a flag and wine, snuck out with it, ran. They make jokes about it. I, I didn't even sneak out. Right. He just like just walked said, off. I'm taking a piss. I drink all your wine. Yeah. <laughs> like, Which is it's great. I, I love I love the way that Severo is used as kind of a utility wrench, so to speak. Like he's I mean, this this is clearly something that was discussed when their rings were mm-hmm. off because it had to have been right. Because there's no way it could have been discussed otherwise, and it was clearly something planned out. Like, a plan, uh, like, we, we know we know how quickly Severo can run two kilometers. Um, that was discussed. One, one and a half minutes? Maybe faster? One and a half minutes, but, <laughs> but Severo's a liar, so probably faster. I think it was something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's Mustang's lie. Uh, but they have the, they clearly have the plan of how to take down... House Apollo very quickly, single-handedly. Um, so I think that is precisely what was discussed mm-hmm. without the rings. Yeah, I would agree with you. So mm-hmm. to round out the chapter, we have the rest of the conquering of House Apollo, which is obviously facilitated by Severo, as we'd mentioned. You know, he runs and with the other members begins to take down the house. They, they very quickly infiltrate and take down everyone with the exception of a horse girl who runs away. Mustang quickly rides after her, gets her, and captures the standard of Apollo. Not only, not only runs away, jumps off of the tower and mysteriously floats down right. with some like distortion around her. Right, right. Like they were trying to save the girl so that Apollo could stay in the entire fight. However, because because the goal is to eliminate Apollo's entire force, because if Apollo is eliminated entirely and made slaves, then Apollo, the proctor, has to go home. And he cannot hang out anymore on Olympus. So my problem with that, and is it the last, it might be the last sentence, or very close to it, of this chapter. He says something, you're through, I taunt Apollo, your house has fallen, my army roars once more. I bask in the sound of the winter air as sun peaks over the winter, uh, the western lips of the valleys. Uh, Marion, what is that word? What? What page? Marineris. Third paragraph down. Valles Marineris. Valleys Marinera. <laughs> Marineris. Um, I S E. No, I know. Marineris. Uh, Nope, that's not quite Mariner. It. But he, he mentioned but then you add the plural. No, I I I've I've moved past the pronunciation because <laughs> okay. I don't care that much. Uh, he mentions at some point that Apollo now has to leave because those are the rules. And I thought that to be very kind of short-sighted because nobody's followed the rules so far. Hmm. I don't think that's the last we deal with Apollo. Proctor Apollo. Okay. All right. Because of how like over the like over the top he was about I can't find the actual sentence. But he says like you have to leave those are the rules something like that. Yeah. Right. And it just seems so innocent and naive. Right. 
especially given how much he's already seen these proctors cheat. And he's taking Fitchner on his like single word of once their house is gone, the proctors have to leave. But it's not like that's like a set in stone law. Right. It's not it's not as though it's, it's just kind of a death. passing comment right. from Fitchner. So much of the society is based on so far as we're aware, like social paradigms, and they've broken so many to let the jackal mm-hmm. go that it feels like it's crumbling. It's all based on meritocracy, but now, in fact, we're seeing it being based on who can pay the most. Yeah, it's more oligarchical. Oligarchical is a fun word. Yeah. Um, Any other thoughts on the chapter? Yeah, no, it is. (laughs) When they start chanting the name Reaper. Of course. Or Darrow. Do they start chanting Darrow? I think they chant his actual name. Darrow, oh, Andromedus. Darrow, oh, Andromedus. Darrow, oh, Andromedus. Uh, That's not actually actually said, though. I I think they actually chant Reaper. Pa- then Pax bellows my name, and then Titus's voice echoes it. The Nyla from the far Titus. tower. And soon a hundred. Jesus, I, I keep know, fucking that up. I know. Whatever. He. All it says is my name. It doesn't say. Um, it's. They chant. The last sentence is they chant the name of the Reaper at the Proctors because they know whom we now fight. But it doesn't say if it's Reaper or Darrow Al Andromedus Pegasus. Andromedus, um, you fuck. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Regardless, yeah. It, it doesn't explicitly say one way or another. I assumed it was the name Darrow. Agreed. I, it's, it's definitely Darrow. Ow, Andromedus, I think. It could be like Darrow, ow, Andromedus, Reaper, Darrow, ow, Specifically because Reaper. it's Pax that yeah. starts it. And I don't think Pax starts it with Reaper. No. Yeah, he's he's all about the full names. <laughs> Pax, ow, Telemannus. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to stop reading. You didn't. You, That's you wanted been to keep going. Theme. I wanted to keep going. Of course, I wanted <laughs> to keep going. You, you know, it goes. It goes without <laughs> saying. Uh, my dad read this entire book after I recommended it to him in a day and a half. My brother has since picked it up to read along with us and has tore through the book in the last week. And so the fact that we're we're trying so badly to pace this out as well as we have is. Honestly, an incredible statement on uh, on your patience, because mm. holy fuck, does this book just not beg you to take the next page? Oh, that's all I want to yeah. do. And I'll probably do that right after. Cool. What were your favorite moments from this week's reading? Any any in particular you'd call out? Oh, uh, I think the re the reunions. All of the reunions, specifically that of Pax and Darrow and that of Severo. And I keep wanting to say Titus. Jesus Christ. Why can't Tactus? So actually, Tact- G- why? Why am I so bad it, at that? Why do I constantly? It's think actually not your in, fault. So something that a number of authors have talked about, but George R.R. R. Martin popularized to some degree, modern, modern popularization is when you're writing a book, take the letters of the alphabet and try to not duplicate the letters as much as you possibly can. So try to roll through the whole alphabet with, with each of your characters. So as to reduce this repeat problem, so you don't have people with T. Okay. I can yeah, see that. You know. uh, this has both the same first letter and the same last sound ending yeah. syllabus. So, uh, not syllable. Jesus. <laughs> what the fuck is <laughs> syllable? Syllable. <laughs> 
Uh, syllables, <laughs> right? Word. Uh, Tactus and Titus. They sound like brothers. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They are not. Yeah, but those those reunions, I think, uh, were my favorite moments. Okay. And and the Reaper song. Yeah. That stood out to you, huh? It did. Cool. Of course it did. How could that not? It, you know what? What's what's really interesting is on my my first listen through, um, it was a great moment, but I wasn't able to pick it apart as well because I was listening to it, if that made sense. Like it, it was okay. not That's it wasn't something where I could go line by line and tear it apart. So the first and like, let, let me say here, like me tearing it apart was technically after finishing the chapter. Yeah. Like I, I didn't, I didn't tear it apart like I did uh, while we were recording in my first read through, because a lot of it was kind of thinking back on it after getting through this section. I definitely, definitely had a lot of it in my mind while I was reading forward. Of course. I, I just think it's not as easy to do when you're listening to it. So to actually like again re-engage and reread through it um part of me is you want to reread like oh yeah here here's this and so it, it kind of it didn't resonate with me this time but it's cool to hear that it was still so important and resonant to you um the other thing is something that we never really touched on we kind of glassed or glossed over it was uh the use of the pulse spear yeah in the final showdown i kind of talked about it he showed uh, up at the gate yeah but pulse spear. Yeah, but this wasn't against Apollo. Mm-hmm. It was clearly given by Apollo. <laughs> the three proctors scatter after the pulse spear goes through their shielding. I don't know. Just more badassery from Darrow. Yeah. yeah there, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that in this chapter. Glad that you enjoyed that. There, there's so many good moments here. There's so many good moments. It feels weird, but like the chapter Oathbreakers is almost lost. Because it, it builds so much of how Dara and Mustang like, decide to take part in their grouping of society and how they're going to move forward. That even even if you like rewind this halfway, I mentioned like I can't really place some specific like thoughts on that chapter because it, it, it definitely got lost. Yeah. And. I, I think it's it's important. Like the the chapter itself is important enough where it, it warrants conversation, but also it's light enough compared to some of the other events. Like I said at the very beginning of this, like there this entire section just feels like laden with really crazy events that it's hard to kind of even think about some of the overall themes if it weren't for the like Reaper song and if it weren't for some of the specific moments of reunion and other things like that that are just throughout this section love love those highlights i i would definitely agree i feel like tactus and severo's reunion for me is one of the highlights i love kind of the joking nature and seeing severo again back together with darrow is great and their friendship of handing back the sling blade to darrow's awesome um any mysterious questions sitting in your head going forward or is is there anything that you're kind of questioning i mean obviously the blossom okay I feel like I've resolved that after my conversation mm-hmm. with you. I, I'm curious about what makes this the end of the book. Yeah, right, right. We, we'll, we'll, get, um, we'll get to that in a second. 
I, so we, 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 I, I want to jog to what you're saying. Okay. Okay. We'll get, yeah, far. Yeah. We'll, we'll get I, I feel like that's a good, good okay. end all question. So if, if that's where you're leaning, we'll, we'll hang out a second. So, okay. um, do you have any suspicions of Mustang? I mean, yeah, we mentioned this before. I have a creeping suspicion that if she's not a red, she has connections to EO's family. Mm-hmm. Maybe not enough to actually know who Darrow is. Maybe though. There's just so many connections there that it makes me it it makes me hard pressed to believe that there's nothing connecting them somehow. Sure. Okay. Okay. So what do you think happened to Roke? I think he's still alive. And I still think that he betrayed Darrow. I think him him professing his love about Leah was actually him setting the trap for Darrow. Hmm. Okay. So I think he's alive. I don't know if he's still, I don't know if he's leading House Mars or in the leadership of House Mars like he was with Darrow as a member of the war room. I, I would I would believe that he's in a similar high-ranking tactician uh, position under Cassius. Okay. Hey, I like that. I like that. So, any predilections or updates on who you think Ares is or what you think they are? Mm. <laughs> I think Fitchner is involved. Okay. I still don't know anything else beyond that. It's a toss-up whether or not Dancer is actually the the quote-unquote Ares as far as, like, meaning the head of the organization. Um, Do you think anyone is Ares? Okay. No. I think uh, I think even if Dancer is the head of Ares, I think Ares is a an idea that they follow. Okay, and isn't necessarily an actual person. It, it, it's Ares is their philosophy, and philo- their philosophy comes first. And they're they're the leader of their group follows that philosophy. So in in truth, they can kind of always know where their leadership is heading. As opposed to blindly following a single individual, they have sort of a constitution to follow. Sure, sure. Okay. I <clears throat> I track that, especially as talking about like ideologies and other things like that. That totally makes sense. It's very, um, oh my God, Polinuckian, Chuck Polinick. Uh, like, I, <laughs> Polinuckian, <laughs> like, how the fuck do you say that? It's, it's something like that. His, his last name is already crazy to pronounce correctly, but it's, you know. Crazy in the way where I don't understand. Not crazy in the way. No, I, I can see where you're coming from. I I meant it in more of a literally parallel to the U.S. Constitution. Sure. As in, I, I think that's what should be followed, as opposed to the individual um, and unhinged ideas of a single leader. Sure. I think they should they should have something written in stone to. F- to be their guide. Sure. If no, that makes I, sense. I, I took that. I took that. So <clears throat> how will Darrow in the end of this book, we've got 51 pages left deal with Cassius when the time arrives. Cassius. Cassius. <laughs> now <laughs> now I did that me. for you. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, now I feel pandered to <laughs> properly. Um, properly pandered to, um, I don't think that's that's where I'm really curious about what happens here. This there's 50 pages left, more or less. What did you say? There's 51? literally 51 pages left. Yeah. 
And this goes back to almost, I think, the first episode where I asked, was this written in a way that it was intended to be a standalone book and the sequels came after? Or was it written as a as a um, first part of a series to begin with? And getting this far into the book and having so much to resolve and so few pages left, either I'm going to be sorely disappointed in the resolution that comes forward, or it was written to be kind of the first chunk of a book to begin with. Not that anything's wrong with either way to like start a book, but I'm so excited that there's more to read after this because I know I don't have to like worry about how quickly things will get resolved. And truly, I don't think things get resolved with Cassius in this book. Okay. Okay. I could see Cassius winning. Taking Primus. Tech of the whole thing. Well, is that how it's set Primus forward? of the Institute winner. Same same concept. Right. So I, I could see him being the quote unquote winner of this game. Um, and Darrow. I, all right. Here's my guess. Here's my guess. Uh, Darrow kills the Jackal. Cassius wins the game. Darrow gets taken up by the person we were talking about before. Third in line. Lauren. Lauren. Um, Rage Knight. Taken in as sort of the uh, um, apprentice to him and things build from there. Okay. And Darrow sort of vies to take down the Bolognas from his position as apprentice to Lorne. And the Augustuses for their awfulness, right? Um, I think the, the Augustuses get taken down. I, so I think what happens is the Jackal gets killed. Arch Governor Augustus is pissed darrow figures out a way to figures out a way to leak all the information to the general public about the fact that the arch governor has been bribing everything mm-hmm. like bribing the institute to get his son to win obviously all the parents like the gold high-ranking parents of children that died basically for a rigged game overthrow the arch governor mm-hmm. and the Bolognas take first place. Okay. In ranking among the society and Darrow kind of nuzzles in with Lorne as apprentice to second place. Okay. All right. And plots from there. Um, Other thoughts on the end. In addition to that, <sighs> just anything else that you've lingering that might resolve. I really, I really, I want Darrow to kill everybody. Including Severo? Yeah. Why? Absolutely. Because Severo is so, like, short-sighted about his his rage. Like, clearly, Darrow lied, but anyone could really see that Darrow lied about everything that was happening because he didn't really have a choice for it. Um, so you literally want Darrow to kill every one of these gold son of a bitches. Absolutely. Okay. No one. Not every one of them, but... Well, who, the leader who deserves, of every remaining house. Who, who deserves to survive in, in your head? Uh, the people that are currently following Which me. includes Severo, kind of. Oh, sorry, Cassius. Oh, okay. I meant Cassius. All right. All right, okay. Sorry, I misheard you. I miss. I miss. I was like, Jesus Christ, Severo is the most loyal going, no, motherfucker no, 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 on no, this no. planet. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I think there's going to be some betrayal from within, from within. I'm not sure by who. I could see it being, mm, I think it'd be from somebody kind of unnamed at this point, but was 
I don't know, a member of House Diana, something. I, I don't I don't know. I think he'll deal with internal betrayal. Is Vixus still around? Yes, Vexus and Pollux are still around, um, but they're they're with Antonia. Which one? Right? Pollux. Yeah, right. Sided well, we, with him. Pollux was the one that kind of yep. sided with him. Um, I think he'll he'll uh, kind of regain that trust, okay. and uh, that'll be a way of infiltrating House Mars. Beyond that, I'm not sure. I think I'd I'd like to see some actual resolution. I don't think we'll actually see that, and I don't think he's the one that wins. I think somebody, I think the fact that he's not been a part of a house means that whenever he kills the second to last house leader, who, the de facto winner is the other remaining house. Got it. Interesting. And I think they just end the game at that point and declare them okay. the winner. Interesting. Without fanfare. Okay. I, I could see that happening. Dude, I'm I'm so excited to conclude these books next week. I'm so excited to talk about the end of this book. I have God, I'm gonna be so pissed, aren't I? <laughs> like, I'm gonna be so pissed that I can't just continue. Dude, you're gonna have to wait two weeks, uh, which is gonna be rough before we jump into uh, Golden Sun after this. But holy shit, is this is this next section exciting? I'm so excited to talk about the next the next chunk of the book and even the next book going forward. Because, wow, does it change and expand? You know, I, I would agree with some of the sentiment on the front of this book where it compares it to the Hunger Games and other things where it's contained inside of the small space. But holy shit, does the world open up after this? And I'm so excited for those moments. That's not really a spoiler, oh, yeah, I but can, like, I can imagine. It, it feels good, man. All, all things considered, I'm so excited for next week. Next week, we finish the book. So next week is our last section on this. The week following, we're going to do a debrief at the same time as we also do the introduction to the next book. So we'll do a twofer episode per usual. Are we doing a threefer? We might do a threefer. It's not not confirmed. Because we might do a short story. We're probably going to do a short yeah. story because I think we've talked about we'll, that pretty we'll, extensively. We'll see. I don't think we'll do a threefer in the same we'll week, see. but we might space it out with like a, no, 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 but with a, with a short story, then an intro, then an outro. As far as like between our last section of this book and the first section of the next book, I think there's going to be three episodes. Yeah. I think a debrief of Red Rising, a short story, and an intro to the next book. Right. Which I think will yes. happen. I think the short story happens on its own week. And then we do the intro and the outro. We do the outro and the intro on the same week. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's semantics. Regardless. Um, I am so excited. I think we... This is the end. <laughs> what a ride it's been. Yes. Yeah, it's over, man. So soon? I I, I guess so. So, what... It, it's been two and a half hours. What are we now? Um, tell people to follow us to hear what happens next. And listen to your fucking drunk ass ramble anymore. <laughs> like, no, I don't think they do. Thank you for listening to Words and Whiskey. We hope you've built up a tolerance to us. Subscribe to us on your preferred platform like Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever else you use. And check us out at our website, wordsandwhiskey.show. We filled our top shelf with our favorite cocktail recipes, as well as other important information for you. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Words Whiskey Pod. 
All those links and more can be found in our show notes. A five-star rating on the platform of your choosing goes a long way to springing us up on them leaderboards and getting us noticed. We're just two dudes helping encourage people to read and get out of their comfort zone while thinking critically about literature. Thanks for listening, and we bloody damn better see you next week.